The new Community Bible Study Evening Class will hold an informational meeting for the Fall Study of First and Second Peter at 6.30 p.m. Monday, August 26th at Port Royal Baptist Church. CBS is a non-denominational study, and the New Mixed Evening Class has discussion groups for couples, men, and women. This is for the Bible Line, Bill Griffiths, radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is an hour-long program where if you have a particular question about God's word as you've been studying it or an issue in your personal life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, you can reach us locally with your question. Go on the air live or simply dictate it if you're more comfortable. The number locally is 843-525-1859-525-1859 or our toll-free number 877, the call letters WAGP980. Uh, you can also email us and we get emails uh, that come in from all over the country, really other countries as well. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Uh, when your question is answered, even if you email it, some people ask me, uh, they say, well, I can't listen to the Bible line. Well, it's rebroadcast online. You can listen to it anytime you want. Uh, and if you go to a particular date, you'll see what questions were uh, asked in the order they were answered in. Uh, so you can scan down and find your question uh, if if that's of help to you. So anyway, uh, let's begin, Rick. As always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and a number of questions have come in, both dictated and uh, emailed to us. Uh, so let's go to Chris from Derry, New Hampshire, who asks, uh, he says, someone has told me that you taught a series on leadership roles in the church. Uh, specifically, should women teach men? I'd be interested to listen to that, can you tell me the title so that I can get it? Well, I did teach a uh, book of the Bible that's actually airing right now that has as a focus in terms of leadership, and that's the book of Nehemiah. So that would be helpful to you because one of the key underlining themes in Nehemiah is how to be an effective leader. But certainly I have also taught and preached on the roles of men and women in the church, and what you might want to do is listen to the pastoral epistle of First Timothy. So that would be my suggestion to you because there's a number of principles in there for qualifications for leadership, different roles men and women play. Uh, so I would say First Timothy, listen to that, or also one of the pastoral epistles, Titus, and you might want to listen to Titus 2 because in there he uh, unfolds the role of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and so forth. So that might be of, uh, of a benefit to you. So I hope that helps. And uh, let's go to our first live caller, Rick, who's waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Uh, Dr. Brogy, with everything that's going on in Syria, I remember you speaking once, and, and I don't remember when it was, but you were talking about the destruction of Damascus. Could you give us the, 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 just, a, just a basic background on, on, the, on the prophecy concerning Damascus and how it would relate to end times and such? 
It's a great question. Uh, of course, prophetically, uh, nothing has to happen uh, for Jesus to come back uh, to catch up his church. There are no prophecies for the rapture. Jesus could come before this broadcast is over. There's all kinds of prophecy that has to unfold for the second coming of Jesus Christ to take place. Uh, There has to be a one-world government, a one-world leader, a restored temple that's defiled where the abomination of desolation takes place. One of the many prophecies, and by the way, as you see these events unfolding and God setting the stage for prophecy to be fulfilled, and some of which are being fulfilled uh, in reference to the second coming, and then you know the rapture is that much closer because the rapture precedes the second coming of Christ. And so, for instance, there's a number of things that had to take place in Israel. And how did God fulfill the prophecies concerning the first coming? Well, literally, historically, just like he said he would. So there are some people who try to spiritualize the passage or say, well, this doesn't mean that or it can't mean that. And that's what they said for a long time, especially since uh, 70 AD when uh, Jerusalem and the whole country was basically decimated and Israel ceased to function and exist as a nation. But God in 1948 brought the people back into the land where they were officially dictated uh, a nation and recognized as such under Harry Truman. Um, So again, a lot of prophecy has to take place in Israel. And that prophecy is begun to unfold. One of the prophecies you mentioned concerns Damascus and the prophet Isaiah mentions this in Isaiah 17. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin. And so he describes Damascus as becoming a a fallen ruin. If you know, uh, if you know uh, Damascus as a city, it's one of the oldest cities in the world. And Damascus has never become a fallen ruin as it's described in Isaiah 17. But it's going to become a fallen ruin. It's going to be totally destroyed. And of course, uh, in that day, men will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. And this whole passage, this whole section can't be isolated because he's dealing with Damascus and Egypt and uh, prophecies concerning Ethiopia and so on and so forth. And uh, these are prophecies that lead up to the second coming of Christ. So I do find it quite interesting. Damascus is significant prophetically because before the second coming of Christ, uh, we're going to see a total destruction of Damascus. It will be an utter ruin. That's never happened in the history of Damascus. Now, would I say that what is happening there right now, a fulfillment of that prophecy? No, it's not an utter ruin. Uh, It's a mess, but it's not totally decimated. But it will be totally decimated before the second coming of Christ. Uh, Could there be a war that could unfold in the next few months that could totally decimate it? Yes. You say, what if that happened? Well, it's a reminder that uh, the return of the Lord Jesus is that much closer for his church because, again, that would be a fulfillment of a prophecy for the second coming, and the rapture precedes the second coming. So that's a great question. Um, Not asked it much, but appreciate it. Let's go to the next question or caller. All right. In the book of Genesis, when Eve was tempted by the serpent, does the Bible indicate the serpent was Satan? And uh, is this creature the same type of animal that we have in these days? A snake, that is. 
If so, can we uh, say that snakes are evil? I had a study about this subject, and they taught me that perhaps this type of creature in the Garden of Eden called the serpent was not like the snakes that we have in these days. And it could have been a type of prehistoric creature, the ancient serpent, uh, if you will. Would you please give me your point of view on this subject? Well, it's a great question. Let me uh, turn there to Genesis 3 real quickly. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said. And, of course, the temptation begins to unfold in this portion of, of Scripture. Now the name devil or Satan, never appears in the book of Genesis. So the question becomes, well, do we know who the identity of this serpent is? And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And Jewish people to this day, if you ask them who uh, the serpent was, they would say, well, clearly it's, it's the devil, it's Satan, it's uh, Lucifer, uh, the morning star, Uh, after he had fallen. And of course, Scripture defines it as such. Uh, We read, for instance, in Revelation chapter 20, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. In addition, just to tighten the focus a little bit, I'm going to turn here real fast uh, to 2 Corinthians 11. I'm pretty sure it's 2 Corinthians 11. Yes, there it is. In verse um, verse 3, he says, uh, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So again, Paul identifies the serpent here as uh, the one who deceived Eve. And then he goes on to describe these false teachers who mimic what the serpent does, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So even Jewish people understand the identity of the serpent to be Satan And we as New Testament Christians have commentary on that reality as this being, of course, the devil himself, Satan of old. Now, with that said, uh, obviously, when it describes Satan, it describes him before he had tempted man. And the Bible describes him as a, a very attractive creature. He was more crafty than any beast of the field. So he he was a crafty creature, and he was an attractive creature. Obviously, Eve was not scared out of her wits when she saw this snake. But after the devil deceived Eve, God cursed the devil. And he says, cursed are you more than all cattle, uh, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the... Uh, the way the devil appeared uh, changed after the temptation. He was cursed and he crawls on his belly as a serpent at that point. Uh, This is just like there are theophanies and Christophanies in the Bible. There are ways in which the devil has been able to manifest himself, sometimes as an angel of light. Sometimes he came in animal form as he did here as a serpent. Uh, Does this mean all snakes are evil? Not really. Um, they're kind of creepy creatures for a lot of people, but they're not evil. You want to be careful of them because a lot of them are poisonous, but they're not evil. 
any more than any other animal is, but they certainly are a reminder to us of the one with whom uh, we have to deal the enemy of our souls. And so every time I see a snake when I'm out running, as I did just yesterday, or I should say Sunday, I was running in the afternoon and I was out in the woods and I just missed stepping on a snake. It wasn't a poisonous one, but I can't help but think of the devil when I run across uh, those little creatures uh, squirming on the ground. So he was once attractive, but he's no longer attractive um, in any way, shape, or form. And certainly he was not when he took on this physical manifestation and used an animal's body. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener, Neil, from Corpus Christi, Texas, writes... I ordered a book from Point of View Talk Radio titled The Richest Man Who Ever Lived by Stephen K. Scott. The book was sold out for several months, so it took a while to get it. Apparently, it's very popular as a Christian book. Just browsing quickly, I noticed some interpretations of Bible verses that don't seem to be true to the grammatical contextual interpretation of the Bible based on the original languages. Have you read this book? It's 239 pages long and... If you haven't read it, it sounds like you could pretty quickly, and it might be worthwhile considering how many Christians and non-Christians are being influenced by it. Gotcha. No, I haven't read the book, so um, I'm not familiar with it. Kirby Anderson has a lot of integrity, and he uh, is the president of Point of View Ministries, so he's usually pretty careful about the kind of material that he puts out there. Um, so I'm not familiar with this book, but I would be surprised if there was major scriptural error in it just because of his reputation to be careful and he is sound, sound theologically. But, um, anyway, there's so many books, there's 30,000 books, new books that come out every year in evangelical presses. Most of them only make, um, one printing and they're never printed again. There are some classics uh, that have ministered to so many people. They're printed over and over and over again. Can't even begin to read them all. Uh, most of the books I read are not the uh, books in the what I call the Christian pop culture. I read more books on theology, commentaries, and things of that nature. But anyway, um, uh, so I'm not going to promise you I'm going to read it. Don't know anything about it, but it sounds like it might be interesting. Certainly an interesting, catchy title, which is a key to marketing books these days. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. My question relates to the issue of discipleship, Dr. Brogy. Um, I, I can be a believer, and I believe I can also be a disciple of Christ. Is there any differentiation between those two terms? That's a great, yeah, it's a good question. Go ahead. I cut you off. Any? No, that's, that's all right. That's, that, that was my question, sir. All right. Um, the term disciple, mathetes in Greek, just means a learner. And it can be used in different ways and in different fashions in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used of someone who's not even converted yet. Uh, there are people, for instance, in John, the sixth chapter, who were disciples of Christ. They were learners. They were following him. Uh, they're described um, in the uh, multitude of John 6. And then at the end of John 6, you discover that many of them are not even yet 
converted. And so they're what we might call uh, curious disciples. Uh, These are people who are following Christ, some because of the entertainment. I mean, who doesn't want to see a miracle? Some because of the benefits. It's great not only to see a miracle, but to get your stomach fed. And, And Jesus, of course, calls them on this. But when he actually starts uh, speaking about the cost of conversion uh, that he would perform and the need for people to change their mind and to come to him and identify solely with him because he alone is the true food who, in the true drink who can give uh, eternal life, uh, people begin to turn away. Uh, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? His disciples said in John six sixty, and Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the son of man ascending where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and of life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so Jesus uh, is describing some of these disciples who do not believe. So you can have disciples who are followers, but not necessarily converted. The term can also be used of people who were followers, say, of John the Baptist, uh, some of whom were not converted when Paul met them in in the truest sense in in Acts 19. Uh, In Acts 19, it came about while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper uh, country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we've never heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so you have some people here who are disciples of John. Again, the word just means followers. They were obviously in Palestine, in Israel, during the public ministry of John. And they recognized John's message that Messiah is coming. And so he was preparing the way of the Lord. And they left and they went back to Ephesus. And what John had prepared them for, they did not know had actually been fulfilled that the one that John spoke of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they didn't know yet that it was Jesus. And, of course, they heard on this day. And so Paul asked them a diagnostic question of sorts, and he identifies them as an unbeliever. Now, uh, again, these are transitional lines. Had these people, you know, died, people could say, well, will they go to heaven? Well, they believed Messiah was coming. They didn't know his name was Jesus. Uh, now God has overlooked the times of ignorance and he's declared to all men everywhere that they must repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Christ, having furnished proof to all men that he's Lord when he raised them from the dead. Um, you could also equally argue because their heart was open, God was going to get the gospel to them and their salvation would be complete. But clearly you have curious disciples like in John six who aren't even saved and yet they know all about Jesus. The word disciple can also be used of a committed disciple, someone who has made a decision for Christ. And so we are commanded in Matthew 28, a verse that is often uh, abused and misunderstood and sometimes used as an excuse 
not to do what really God has called the church to do. Um, We have called for the last few hundred years this section of Scripture the Great Commission. In fact, I have the New American Standard Bible open in front of me, and above the paragraph that begins at verse 16 are the words, the Great Commission. Uh, those obviously are not inspired by God. Those That terminology has only been around a couple of hundred years when we describe this commission. Um, that's supplied by the publisher as a paragraph title so that as you flip through the Bible and you're trying to find something, oh yeah, here's the chapter that deals with the parable of the ten virgins, and here's the parable of the talents, and the judgment to come, and the plot to kill Jesus. Those are all paragraph titles here in 25 and 26, and here over verse 16, the Great Commission. And this term is used in deference to the limited commission that is described earlier in this gospel when Jesus said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Uh, go just to the house of Israel. And of course, God had them do that because he's a promise-keeping God, and he wanted to underscore and highlight that the promises he made to Israel would indeed be kept. Well, Israel as a nation rejected Jesus. He came to his own, his own received him not, John one eleven tells us. And so now Jesus expands the commission. And so for the last couple of hundred years, we call it the Great Commission. And he says in that Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And by the way, the Great Commission is found in five different places in the New Testament. This is different from Acts 1, different from Luke 24. Uh, This occasion is post-resurrection prior to the ascension. Uh, There's approximately 500 people, it appears, that are here based on the 1 Corinthians 15 account. And he says to these disciples in Galilee, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he's not in Jerusalem, the mount in which he ascends. And the reason I even bring this up is sometimes I heard a sermon once, and I've heard it many times. People say, well, these are the last words of Jesus. These aren't the last words. These were said during his 40-day ministry. And these were said shortly after the resurrection um, when he appears to them. Uh, this is a, 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 week, uh, a week later uh, after the resurrection. So it's a short time later where the ascension takes place in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. But he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, please note what it does not say. It does not say, go, therefore, and do discipleship. Uh, That's the way a lot of people want to read this and have read it in the last 40 or 50 years. And so there have been discipleship movements who would say, well, Jesus is commanding us to do discipleship by making disciples. Let me give a, a, a synonym contextually. Go, therefore, and make converts of all nations. That's the thought. It's not do discipleship. Now, the Bible teaches the principle of discipleship though the word never appears anywhere in the New Testament. Here he's saying, go make disciples, converts of all the nations. What do you do with new converts? You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's usually done in the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles in the day people are saved. Now, with time, with confusion, people not understanding baptism, that's usually not prudent. But a short time after conversion— a person should be baptized uh, as a symbol, as a sign of their faith. So you make converts, you baptize, and then you teach them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And so all the way through the Acts of the Apostles, people are saved, they're baptized, and they're instructed in the Lord. Now, there have been recent models in the last uh, 50 or so years where people have said, well, here's how discipleship should take place. Um, You know, I should have someone where I, I teach two people and build into their lives, pour into their lives, and those two people pour into someone else's lives, and and everybody has a Bible study where they're working with a few people with a view towards helping them to get a Bible study going, and they build these multi-chains, like a multi-marketing level chain, and that's not really a model, again, you find from Scripture. It is true in 2 Timothy 2.2, again, a verse that is often used uh, out of its context where uh, Paul specifically says in Second Timothy to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, his child of the faith, who was an old covenant believer but came into the new covenant through the preaching of Paul on his first missionary journey. And he says in Second Timothy 2, he says, the things that you've heard from me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others as well. So the things you've heard from me, these entrust to faithful men whom you will be able to teach others as well. And so there's a, there's a pattern here. Uh, you don't build into everyone's life, Timothy, but there are select people that you are to build into who are called faithful men, who have the ability to do what you do. Why? Because they're gifted in that way. Um, not everyone is gifted as a pastor teacher. But there are some people in the body of Christ who are gifted as pastor teachers. And so he says, in the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able, because God's gifted them in that fashion, to teach others also. And so there is the baton that is being passed on to the next generation of pastors. Now, I do believe you could take this principle and you could apply it to other spiritual gifts and callings that God puts on a person's life. For instance, if someone has the gift of mercy, which is one of 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, and they recognize someone else with the gift of mercy, then they might indeed want to uh, take that person under their wing, work with them, equip them so that they can be more effective in their administration of that spiritual gift, just like someone with the gift of teaching would do it with someone else who has the gift of teaching or someone else who has the gift of pastor teacher would do it with someone else who has the gift of pastor teacher and so forth. Uh, So discipleship takes place on many levels. It takes place largely through the body of Christ, uh, where God gives all these different spiritual gifts in the uh, confines of a local church all these gifts are working and functioning together. So when I walk into the community Bible church building, either here in Beaufort or I was in Bluffton on Sunday at the 11 o'clock service, uh, I saw in both places all these very spiritual gifts that were working and were functioning amongst God's people there. And I'm able to use my gift in that context because they're faithful with their gifts. And that's really how discipleship takes place. I'm discipling people with my gift every Sunday when I stand up in the pulpit and I feed the flock of God. That's what I'm supposed to do as a pastor teacher. The way a pastor shows his love for God's people is not to counsel them 24-7 or visit every sick person in the hospital. And there's a lot of things that churches expect pastors to do, and we may do those things, but that's not the primary thing. 
that a pastor is called to do. Those are things that any Christian could do. The thing a pastor or teacher is primarily called to do is to feed Christ's sheep. That's how we show our love for him. And so I'm discipling people every Sunday morning from the pulpit. Uh, And then there are people I might take under my wing who I might give special attention to. But again, the principles are are clear here. So that's a great question. It's a refreshing question, and I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener writes, uh, Recently, a friend of mine told me that in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, there is no equivalent for the letter J. He then proceeds to tell me that the earliest form of Yahweh was translated, uh, they write Leova, but I think he meant to write Jehovah. His basis, I believe, is understanding the correct translation of the name of God. Can you provide some insight on this? As I want to respond with a resource he can research or listen to, as well as for my own understanding of this argument. Also, when helping people find a church, what are some resources you use to help narrow that search? Well, YHWH, the consonants that you uh, send here in your email this morning, are four Hebrew consonants. Uh, In Hebrew, there are vowels, but they're usually not written. And so even today, when you visit Israel and you look at signs on the side of the road, the vowels are are, are not there. Most people today who uh, learn Hebrew learn it using what's commonly called the Masoretic text, where the Masoretes who lived in the ninth century uh, went ahead and copied the scriptures and they inserted vowel markings. And so like when I read Hebrew, uh, learning Hebrew in seminary, we would read that text because it supplied the vowels for us. Now, people who have been born in Israel, in their mind, they supply the vowels. So, for instance, if we had the um, word in English, run, they would uh, print it. It, They obviously don't use the the Latin characters that we use, but they would print it R-N. And the the, the vowel U would be inserted in their mind, R-U-N. So when they saw RN, they would read it run. And so, and there was a number of reasons, by the way, they did this, uh, principally because of the cost of paper. Think if you could remove every vowel out of every word, how much space that would save. And when paper was at a premium and extremely costly, then when you copied the scripture, you just did it without the vowels. Um, So again, That's the way the Hebrew people wrote. So when you look at the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, God's covenant name, God's eternal name, as he describes it, uh, to Moses. And let me just turn there for a moment to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3. If you remember, Moses was out herding sheep in the wilderness and he comes across this bush and it's a miracle bush because it's on fire but it's it's not consumed, and he's fascinated, and as he approaches it, uh, the angel of L-O, capital L-O-R-D, appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and he said, um, I, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. And when the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, saw 
that he had turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And so the conversation unfolds, and at one point, Moses says here in 3.13, that Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And again, um, I am are the uh, four Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Y-H-W-H has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So the proper name for God, there are many names for God. There's a series going on right now at Community Bible Church on Wednesday nights on the names of God. And we're just highlighting a, a handful of those scores of names, uh, many of them that are hyphenated and two-part names that we won't even begin to look at. But one of, but the proper most sacred name for God is YHWH. Well, as the prophets had foretold, there came a time in Israel's history when they would be judged, disciplined by God, and carried away first by the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes called Israel, and the two southern tribes that was named after the larger of the two, Judah, by the Babylonians. Um, God said the Assyrian tribes, those who would be carried off, um, you know, the Judah should have learned from it, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, but they didn't. So they were eventually carried away, and 70 years later, just as the prophet had foretold, they were brought back into the land. Not all of them came. In fact, a lot of them stayed. Life was good there, and they decided they just wanted to, to live there. And so you have this scattering of all the Hebrew people so that when Jesus steps on the scene, of course, many Jews don't even live in Israel. And so we see a little disruption in Acts 6 between the Hebraistic Jews and the Hellenist Jews, the Greek Jews. The Greek Jews would be those Jews who lived outside of, outside of Israel. And so their native tongue was not Hebrew or Aramaic, but it was Greek. That's why there came the need for a copy of the scriptures known as the Septuagint, printed a few centuries before Christ came here, because most Jewish people did not speak Hebrew because they lived outside of Israel, and so they read the scriptures in Greek, which was their native tongue. Just like many people listening to my voice this morning don't read the scriptures in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, the three languages God inspired it in, but they read it in their tongue that they know, English. And so there came a time when Jews became interested in wanting to read the scriptures again in their original tongue. And when they came to these four consonants, Y-H-W-H, there were two different ways in which you could place the vowels. You could place it so it read Yahovah, or you could place the vowels where it said Yahweh. Now, you're tr- it is true. There is no J in Hebrew. Um, but the way we would, Yahovah, uh, we would translate that into English, Jehovah. 
And so most translations don't do that anymore. But there was the predecessor to the New American Standard, which was called the ASV, the American Standard Version. And the American Standard Version was basically an update of the King James. People saw the need for a new translation because the King James was becoming so archaic to many English-speaking readers. And so there was a translation first done in England. It was a joint plan by both British and American scholars. And then there came one from America alone called the American Standard Version of the Bible, the ASV. Uh, The King James, of course, had its predecessor, the Geneva Bible. When early America started, people didn't read the King James Bible. For the most part, they read the Geneva Bible the Puritans and the like. But there came a time when the Geneva Bible was very archaic and very difficult to read. And so they began to read the King James Bible. People say, well, I'm a 1611 King James man. Well, I, I don't think so. Most, most of us couldn't read this 1611. When people refer to the old King James today, they're actually reading the 1769 translation of the King James It's the fifth revision of the King James. In fact, between 1611 and the 1769, the old King James in deference to the new King James that came out in the 70s, um, there was over 100,000 word changes because our language had evolved. And so there came a point where in America, people said, we need a new translation. So the ASV came out in 1901. And uh, the uh, consonants YHWH, Uh, were translated Jehovah. And so they translated it Jehovah all the way through. Now, when you read the new American standard that uh, has had several upgrades since it first came out in the 50s to reflect the changes in English, the way they differentiate, they, they didn't translate it Jehovah, they translated it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And if you read your scripture carefully, you will see that that word is different from capital L, small letter O-R-Ds. So you'll see two spellings of Lord in the English translations, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or capital L, small letter O, small letter R, small letter D. The small letter version is translating the Hebrew word for Lord Adonai. The um, all cap, is translating YHWH. Well, why didn't they just keep it Jehovah? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, when the New American Standard or the American Standard of 1901 and then upgraded again in 1928 came out with the translation Jehovah, uh, the Jehovah's Witness who had been around for, you know, 25 years and then 40 years said, oh, see, we have a, we have a Bible that authenticates what we believe, that God should be called Jehovah. And so prior to that, of course, at this point, the New World Translation had not been done or released. That came out, if I remember, in 61. Uh, They used the King James Bible. And so when the ASV came out, the American Standard Version, uh, they translated uh, YHWH as Jehovah, and they had an account that they could use. Um, the problem was, is that the American standard version, because it was an upgraded English was more understandable to a lot of Americans and a lot of Jehovah's witnesses who were reading the, uh, American standard version ended up getting converted. 
and it became a problem for Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's why they eventually came out with their own translation, the New World Translation, which is just a total hack and butcher job done by people who obviously had no linguistic training or background, because even if you're an atheist, you couldn't translate it that way. So when you read your Bible, uh, most Bibles have a preface in the front. Most American Christians have never read the preface to their Bibles. Uh, Read the preface. It might be very illuminating for some of us. Because when you're reading the covenant name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you're reading YHWH. And uh, should you pronounce it uh, Yahweh or should you pronounce it Yehovah or Jehovah as we would say in English? Well, a Jew not wanting to mispronounce the name of God, the sacred name of God, even to this day, when they come to the term YHWH, they just say Aranai. They don't say Yahweh. They don't say Jehovah. They say uh, Aranai. Uh, They use the other name for Lord because they don't want to take to their lips a mispronunciation of God's holy name. Um, So there are different names for God in the Bible, and um, I hope this maybe adds some illumination to your thinking. Well, you mentioned in your answer uh, the subject of different versions, different translations of the Bible, and Maurice from Salem, New Hampshire, Hampshire, writes, you previously mentioned that the Message Bible translation was not accurate. Do you have an explanation of why? Rick, I only have a copy of a Bible in front of me when I come here. I don't have a computer in front of me. But if you'd pull up the message for me, maybe I can give a, an illustration or an example. And go, if you would, to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And uh, let's read verses 9 through 11. Let me first read it out of um, the New American Standard. By the way, for those who are interested in studying some of the issues that we're highlighting I taught a course on bibliology on Wednesday nights from time to time. We have a thing called the Institute of Biblical Studies at Community Bible Church. And uh, one of the courses I taught was bibliology. And we looked at everything concerning, uh, you know, the history of the Bible, uh, various issues like inspiration, inerrancy, uh, how we know the Bible's inspired, fulfilled prophecy. One of the sections, it's section six of the seven sections in the course, Uh, deals with the English Bible, and we review the history of the English Bible. And in that section, I also review a number of different translations, 1 Corinthians um, 6, 9 through 11. Um, And we review a number of translations, and one of the translations I review is the message. Now, the message was uh, a translation done by one man. It's not really a translation because usually the word uh, or it's not a version, it's a translation, and there is a difference. A uh, version, like the New American Standard, not translation, but version, though we refer to it as a ver- uh, translation. All versions are translations, not all translations are versions. The KJV, the King James Version, the NIV, the New International Version. A version is the, a version, V-R-S-I-O-N, is done by a group of translators, where uh, the, a translation all by itself is usually done by one, sometimes two people. And so Eugene Peterson uh, did a translation of the Bible known as The Message. And in that course, section six, I evaluate the various English translations, and we look at some of the pros and cons. I don't like The Message. I, I could not endorse it. 
because for the simple reason that it is in many places just a gross mistranslation. And some of his own theological prejudices bleed through on the pages of Scripture. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Reads virtually the same in every English translation version like King James, NIV, NAS, ESV, whatever. Um, Read it to me out of the message, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, if you would. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. All right, good. Those who use and abuse each other use and abuse sex. What he is translating there is um, from a more literal rendering of the Greek New Testament, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals. So um, the whole idea and teaching, the clear teaching against homosexuality and effeminate people, not people just with female characteristics, but what we might translate um, male prostitutes, is just totally gone. It's, it's gone. And there are scores of examples like that where he softens what the text says, I guess maybe because he doesn't want to be offensive. And if you go to section six in my course in Bibliology, you can read those. And you can read many of really just gross abuses of the scripture, not to mention he's egalitarian in his theology. And so many passages that teach complementarianism, that men and women are equal, but have different roles, he softens and dilutes and literally changes. Uh, And that's very, very unfortunate. Um, He has uh, made the press that put it out millions of dollars. And a lot of Christians initially endorsed it. Oh, a new translation. They got all excited about it. But like myself, hadn't really read it. And, but when you start reading it, you say, man, what a hack job. This is not, this is not a translation of the Bible. Even it's a, it's a commentary. It's his commentary on many texts of scripture that he's twisted and distorted. And it's not a healthy translation. Now there are some paraphrase translations and there are different types of translations that are done. Dynamic equivalent, fluid equivalent, so forth. Um, This one, in some paraphrase translations are very well done. This one is not, in my judgment. And um, surprisingly, a conservative press put it out. And again, because they had a good reputation, a lot of people bought it and assumed it was great. And uh, it made them in their first year $9 million, which was a huge amount of money for that Christian organization because they're a small organization. Uh, but it's not a good translation. And his so-called scholarship, I don't know where it is. Um, He supposedly is a scholar in the languages. That's highly debatable, and um, some people have called him out on it and even accused him of uh, creating false credentials. I'm not prepared to say that, but I am prepared to say that he has butchered the Greek New Testament in his translation of the message. And again, if you want to study that in detail, the course is available at Search the Scriptures. 
Uh, it's several hundred pages long, the course. Um, if you really want to study the history of the Bible, it would be a great course to consider. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next email comes all the way from Germany. This person writes, I live in Germany, and the church I attend, some women there put on a head covering when we have corporate prayer time, but some don't. I recently read 1 Corinthians 11, and it seems pretty clear that women should wear a head covering. The Apostle Paul appeals to the creation order that women should cover their heads. He even appeals to angels as a reason. Some people believe it was a local custom, which is what I used to think, but now I'm not so sure which is correct. Could you shed shed some light? Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ, Paul opens 1 Corinthians 11 with. And then he says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman, his head being Christ, he said, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. So when he calls a man the head of a woman, he's not depreciating women. He's not saying that men are more important than women, that men are greater than women. Uh, the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in the sight of God, but while they're equal, they have different roles. Jesus is no less God than God the Father, and yet his head is described as the Father. And so even within the Trinity, you see different roles that unfold. And so every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. If you go to Israel today, they will often try to sell you these prayer shawls. They'll say, well, Jesus uh, prayed with a shawl on his head. He did not. He never prayed with a shawl on his head. Uh, Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And Paul said, a man doesn't pray with his head covered. That that tradition came, some say, during the, the, the time of the Babylonian captivity. Those Jews who ended up staying in Babylon ended up adapting some of the native practices and ended up covering their head. But Jews traditionally did not cover their heads when praying, though that has become a common practice in this day. And it's certainly a great way in which to sell tourists prayer shawls when they go to Israel. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, meaning her husband, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. An immoral woman would shave her head totally. And that was a shameful thing to be an immoral woman. And so to pray without having your head covered was, in essence, doing the same shameful kind of thing that a prostitute would do. And so he goes on to say, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, which is, which it, it is, uh, or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. And so, again, you read the whole passage, and he uses two types of words for covering. He speaks of her literal hair as a covering, but he also speaks of her praying with a covering. And I think both are actually in play here. So it becomes a question, what's traditional, what's timeless, what's eternal? There are some eternal principles here. 
uh, about a woman and her hair that still apply to this day, just like there are some principles about a man and his hair that still apply today. He said a woman should never cut off or shave her hair. He said, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is in the image and glory of God, but the woman the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. They're watching. Uh, They watch when we worship. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. So again, two kinds of coverings unfolding here. There are some timeless principles. When you look at a woman and you look at a a man, they ought to look like men and they ought to look like women. You say, how long is it for a man's hair to be too long where it's a shameful thing? As Paul describes it, he says it's a shameful thing for a a man to have long hair. Well, hair length differs at different times in human history. And really, in the first century, uh, most men wore their hair about just, just right above their shoulder. But a woman wore her hair much longer. But what was plain in the first century is when you looked at someone from behind, you'd say, that's a man. When you looked at a woman from behind, you said, that's a woman. And you shouldn't look at a, a man and say, oh, I think that's a woman. Oops, I'm sorry, that's, that's a man, and just a man with long hair. No, there ought to be a distinct difference in hair length. And what I think I find very fascinating is that women who take the male role in a lesbian relationship usually have the shorn hair. They cut their hair to look like a man, and it's a disgraceful thing, Paul says, for a woman to do that. Why? Because she's rejecting the way God made her. She's rejecting her femininity and the role that God has called her to play in, and she's acting like a man. Now, with that said, I do think there is a principle here in terms of a head covering that there's a cultural aspect to it as well. Uh, It's just like when you read the scriptures in John 13, where Jesus said, um, you ought to wash one another's feet. Well, why don't we wash feet today? Well, because Jesus is teaching a principle in light of the cultural setting that you wash feet when someone got to your home, you serve them. And in some cultures, the head covering still carries the idea of submission or headship. And in those cultures, they should be worn. We're out of time. Maybe we can come back to that on another day.